Chapter thirty three of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty three A Primitive Hotel Yanks in Training Visit to Marine Headquarters Keenness and Efficiency. The weakest point in that outrageous hotel was, I found, the question of breakfast. I asked for breakfast. I talked about breakfast. I intimated that I was perfectly willing to pay for breakfast, but I couldn't ever get any. Whilst living there I had to be up early and off on some expedition or other in the cold mornings, and I never could start the day right owing to this defect in the management. The hotel was a French one, and was not patronized by the Americans who lived in billets and arranged for their own breakfasts. For several days I made repeated attempts to encourage the management into some effort towards a breakfast. But no, it was useless. The best that happened was that I had a cup of atrocious coffee on a damp marble-top table with a roll of unbreakable bread about two feet long. The room was a saloon bar, the time usually about 7 a.m. Opposite me sometimes sat the manager in shirt-sleeves and carpet-slippers, eating an enormous slab of repellent cheese and washing it down by drinking a quantity of red wine. This side alone at 7 a.m. is unnerving. Later I bought some biscuits and a tin of jam in order to deaden the taste of the coffee. My first views of the American army were made in the vicinity of Neuchâtel, in this divisional area. A great quantity of training was, of course, on at this time, and everywhere one could see strenuous work and enthusiasm. One felt and saw at once that these people had not come over from so far in any mood of a light and breezy expedition. There was business and determination in the air. And, what was more, that which ultimately meant the crushing of Germany. I meant the big outlook, which you could see the American general staff was taking. They realized that the war was going to be a big job. Everywhere were signs that the work was not going to be underdone. If need be, Germany was to be swamped by the might of America. This early clear vision and its resulting big relentless effect were as instrumental as anything in starting the demoralization of the enemy, which ultimately led to his downfall. I went to a certain bayonet exercise school. Here an English sergeant was giving instructions to the American soldiers. He was a gymnastic sergeant and a non-com in the old regulars, and I don't suppose a finer instructor could have been found anywhere. The Americans all appreciated his value and he appreciated their rising ability. It was a vigorous school, that. Bayonet charges over fields and trenches, rifle ranges, and all the arts necessary to efficient Prussian puncturing. Near this place I saw huge hospital arrangements, some finished, others being constructed. I drove with the general in his car one day to some of the outlying camps, and saw the American army at work on all phases of war training. It was a busy live sector, this Neufchateau. In the evenings when I got back I used to prowl around the men's billets and cookhouses and watch their life there. There was a French and American officers club at Neufchateau, and a great place it was too. I had dinner here several times and met many different men. Cocktails, tobacco smoke, talking and laughter, dinner, then more cocktails, tobacco, talk and laughter, a truly cheery spot. I felt that Americans way back in the homeland would have liked to know what a cheerful job their countrymen made of things. One can say with truth in this war that the nearer one was to the front, 
the more cheerfulness one found around. There were several war correspondents in this area, representing some different papers in the States, and I had the pleasure of meeting some of them. They, too, like myself, had hotels as their temporary homes. On a certain day it happened that one or two of them were going over to stay at a place about twenty-five miles away in order to live with the Marines for a bit. They asked whether I would like to come. Rather, I replied enthusiastically. So a morning was fixed for our departure. A large car stood outside one of the hotels at about seven in the morning. We all got in and started off. I have had much motoring to do during my war life, and have known what it is to be motored alongside a precipice on a four-foot road, over a yawning chasm on an amateur bridge, etc. But heaven preserve me from an American wartime chauffeur again. He reduces his speed to about eighty miles an hour whilst passing through towns and villages, but in the country, when he doesn't know the roads, that's when he goes all out. I arrived at the marine area in what you might have taken to be the winning car in a cup race. Tears were pouring out of my eyes and were frozen stiff on my cheeks. The marines are the star troops of the American army and are simply splendid. Their countrymen may well be proud of them. We went to a battalion colonel's house and found him in. I have seen a good many colonels in my time, but never a better from a military point of view than this one. He had, as a regular soldier, seen service in all parts of the world, and subsequently told me many interesting adventures of his campaigns. With him were several regimental officers who all lived in quite a nice little house in the village. The marines were billeted all around and also occupied several wooden huts. We had a most hospitable reception, and I knew at once that this area was going to be of great use to me in my job. I went about amongst the lines making rough notes and taking photographs. Here was a typical sample of the American army dumped down in this strange land to take part in a most peculiar and mighty war, and a jolly good job they meant to make of it. The housing, feeding, and general upkeep of the American soldier are excellent, and the health and strength of the Marines I saw was perfect. We all had lunch in the little house, and afterwards the colonel took myself and a couple of the war correspondents for a walk around his area. The discipline he maintained was that of a battleship. He called out a few men here and there and ordered certain things to be done to show us details of their routine. He ordered out a squad of men to do some bayonet work, and turned a strict, acid criticism on the performance. Everywhere the whole of his command worked with alacrity and smartness. Now and again he caught a malefactor, and in a few warm phrases made him think that perhaps there was a better ole elsewhere than the particular spot at that particular moment. The Marines are comparable to our guards, and one cannot say more than that. I got a wealth of material on this visit. I made drawings from life of several of the soldiers and listened to stories of Cuba and Mexico. I went into one billet, and after I had been talking for some time to those around me, one man asked me whether I had ever met Baron's father, the man who draws the pictures. This was rather embarrassing. I said I had known Baron's father for about thirty years, in fact, that I myself was Baron's father. This caused great merriment to those in the place and bashful confusion to my questioner. I had tea up at the chateau where the Marine Brigadier General lives and one day attended a tea-party given by the French owner of the chateau and his wife. They were very nice people, 
and made very light of the evil times they and their estate had fallen on. I found all my picture stuff well known to them, as Madame had kept on buying it at Mertano's whenever she went to Paris. Finding that I am known in advance before I arrive at a place is always a great relief to me, as I hate explaining. I have been very fortunate in this respect. The first general I met up in the Italian Alps immediately produced my book Bullets and Billets and told me he had got it in Rome. Conversation amongst the Marines at this time consisted almost entirely of the theme, When are we going to be allowed to go to the trenches and begin? The keenness was terrific. No better news could have come to them than that a big battle called for their immediate attendance. Poor chaps. They got their wish before long when they performed their splendid achievement at San Mahil, and took that long enduring salient from the Bosch. End of chapter thirty three. Recording by Philip Gould.